0: Why don't you join me in just giving a really, really great, warm Hope Centre welcome to Kristen Williams? Thank you. Oh, that's a little bit unfair in a way, you know. To get, uh, I um, uh, I find I find when you um, by oh, just um such a, such a, uh, have you been talking to Peter Robertson? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's I, I think it's like you have been. Um, and uh, so anyway, um, I, I find when the presence of God comes, like that for me was a very accurate word that really sums up some pretty big decisions that are happening in our lives right around now. Uh, it started with the, the thing with the you know, with the two cliffs and the bridge, and then, uh, and then that, that was just outrageous. So um, the problem with that is when you get prophesied over like that, it leaves you feeling a bit undone, which dislodges your filter a little bit. Like, I've got some things I want to say to you tonight that kind of need a filter. Be- you know what I mean? Like, uh, th- uh, they kind of need a filter, and the filter is feeling a little dislodged. Phil, um, uh, I want to talk to you tonight about transition. But I feel like uh, during the worship, the Lord was saying the word shift, and I felt like He says for each of us, empowering grace is found by being in step with God and on assignment. And that's what it comes down to for me, is that um, my assignment, I'm, I, I do not have the grace to do what Paul and Jody are doing. I'm, I'm really not a very good church leader. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, Peter, <laughs> Debbie's laughing because she knows. Um, Peter Peter says to me, he says, "Look, you know, you can't you can't just really let everybody have it every time, you know." <laughs> he says, "Sometimes you've just got to have that message, you know, where it's like you lean up on the pillar and do." A f- I just can't do that. I really can't do that. Um, I, I'm not going to tell you what this is, but this is something Ross gave me to read—a little bit of light reading about Ross's journey with. The prophetic call on his life. And I felt like the Lord said about this, Dunamis is on the diligence that produced this document. Now, just, pa! Oh, 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 so there you go, take that. <laughs> now, if you're not, if you're not you, I mean, most of you are used to that. If you're not used to that, <laughs> I mean, church is a really weird thing, isn't it? So I want to. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> dunamis is on the diligence that produced the document. And so uh, for all of us, you know, like we get, we get prophetic words, you know, like you just saw me on the receiving end of one. And we, we, we from time to time, we get prophetic words, but we often don't do any diligence. And then we wonder why there's no dunamis. But we have to be diligent with what God says to us. If you're diligent with what God says, you'll always have what, the anointing to do what he spoke to you about. But if you, if you get prophetic words and they're just like, oh, yeah, how was church? Got a great prophetic word. What was it? Oh, I have no idea. I just know it was good. There's, no, there's no, not going to be the dunamis. The, the, the power of God will rest on the diligence around uh, the words that He gives us. So w- would you agree that we are living in a time of uh, accelerating change? Like even just when you look at the world around us, things are accelerating very quickly. And I just was thinking this afternoon, you know, we've had a long-term basic assumption as believers that there is a, a degree of compatibility between, between the church and our culture, our society, which has been built on, effectively, Judeo-Christian principles. Like, democracy is actually built on Judeo-Christian principles, but now we have this weird thing where everywhere there are democracies, they're beginning to sort of shake and rattle and, and look like they're coming apart at the seams. Why? Because the foundation has been whisked away. So we've had this assumption of a basic compatibility, a basic friendship between the message of the church and the values of culture and society. But we now live in a time where that compatibility either barely exists or no longer exists. I'll give you two examples. The culture we live in confuses our children by telling them, you were not created by a loving father who designed you. You are just a chance evolutionary accident, a biological belch. A, therefore, your existence is meaningless. So culture, our culture confuses our kids by telling them that and then terrifies them by saying, there is climate change accelerating. We're all going to be underwater or fried until the world is just an orbiting sarcophagus left with the echoes of humanity. Bible says, can two walk together unless they agree to do so? I do not agree with that. I can't walk with that. That is a load of, Peter Robinson used to use the word kraptos, K-R-A-P-T-O-S, which he, he used to assure us was a, was a Greek or a Hebrew word, and obviously it's not. And see, this is not dissimilar to the situation for the church in the book of Acts. The church in the book of Acts did not have a compatibility with strict Judaism. And you see, there was conflict between the liberty that is found in Christ and the strict religious rules of of the Pharisees, for example. And there was no compatibility between the message of the church and the oppressive culture of the Roman Empire in which that church was functioning. And so they functioned as a missionary enterprise. And I believe that we are being transitioned back to our missionary roots, that the church is going to have to learn how to be steadfast under pressure. Because that basic compatibility is disappearing. And the church is going to have to be simple and fiery and flexible and focused. And that is terrifying to the devil. Terrifying to the devil. If you and I walk out of here having attended an institutional meeting, that's not terrifying to the devil. But if we walk out the door fiery and flexible and on mission and and ready to go and share the gospel and pray for people, that's incredibly terrifying because it can't be contained within two and a half hours or three or four, depending on how long we go for tonight. And it it doesn't fit within four walls. Church is not a place you go to. Church is something you become. So, do you have, Nat, do we have my pictures I, I want to show, oh, Rebecca, you got them, have you? I want to show you some popular, and uh, um, uh, uh, Thomas McClay was very excited I was going to show you these pictures because I showed these to the young people at Raging Fire. And um, if you search popular pictures of Jesus, awesome. Next one, please. That sure looks to me like a Jewish carpenter. <laughs> How many of you have ever been to Israel? You know, like, gee willikers, he's, he's, oh my word, look at, I, <laughs> now look, I, I'm, I'm, not I'm not mocking the obvious artistic skill that went into these, but there is a theme here. Would you agree there's a theme here? And I think there's one more, is that right? Is there one more? There we are. Okay. Okay, the theme here is this, apart from the fact, uh, go back to that second one. The theme here, apart from the fact that this is obviously a, 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 a white Jesus in the winter. You know what I mean? Like, please, please understand what I'm doing here. I'm not mocking whoever drew that picture. I'm not mocking anything, but all of those pictures that I showed you are all pointing at one thing. Jesus, the suffering Savior, the man of sorrows, the man who came to earth and walked among us as the Lamb of God to be crucified, to go to the cross, to pay humanity's penalty for sin. All of them are Jesus as the man of sorrows. Now, what we need to realize about that, Isaiah 53, that's where the passage is about the man of sorrows, is referring to a tiny portion of the forever existence of the Son of God. That for a tiny portion of His everlasting existence, you, you, you can take um, that off because, because it's, up, it's up there too and it's just... For a tiny portion of his forever existence, he was the man of sorrows. Prior to being born in the stable in Bethlehem, he wasn't that. And now post the cross, he is not that, nor ever will be ever, ever again. That uh, It's easy when that is the primary picture of Jesus, it's easy for us to begin to fashion a predictable, inoffensive, politically correct, culturally appropriate Jesus because we take the characteristics of God and we humanize them. We start seeing things like this. Well, God is good. Of course God is good. But then we define good. And we say God is good and this is what it looks like. He's going to do this and this and this and this and this for you. I saw a car the other day. Uh, that had a number plate, WWJD for you. And I was like, what? WWJD, remember that? What would Jesus do? I was actually just sitting here and I was going, WWPD, what would Peter do? <laughs> you know, I, I, some of you remember Peter Robson, some of you don't. But WWJD, what would Jesus do for you? Of course, there are things that Jesus has done and will do for you. But it sows into that that mindset where we take the characteristics of God and we humanize them, and we make them palatable to our own hopes and desires and definitions of God that we're comfortable with. There's a potential danger in this. You wind up with a God made in your own image. So I want to talk to you about just a few simple transitions that exist in the Bible with regard to the way that people saw and relate to God, because I believe that we are in a significant one of these right now. The first one is uh, in Luke chapter one, and it's where the archangel Gabriel turns up to young Mary. Now, we know at this stage, Mary, who became the mother of Jesus, she was, you know, sort of 12, 13, 14 years old. And this happens. Uh, Luke, One twenty-six. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at what he said and considered what manner of greeting this was. Think about that for a moment. The angel, then the angel said to her, "Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and will be called Son of the Highest. The Lord God will give him a throne of his father, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end." No. Put aside any sterile religious reading of that and think about what just happened. Mary's 12, 13, 14, going about her business. She's living in a culture, obviously, where where people get married a lot younger and she's betrothed to this man, Joseph, and an angel turns up, not just any angel, archangel, high ranking angel, top of the pile angel, and turns up with this greeting and it says she was troubled and was like, what manner of greeting is this? How would you be going? Imagine you're just minding your business, you know, you're brushing your teeth, putting on your jammies and getting ready to go to bed, and this guy turns up. Okay? Now, Mary responds after this, and she says, um, I, I have a question, and the question was a practical question with regard to, well, how is this going to happen? Because I you know, haven't met the requirements for you know, producing said baby that you mentioned. PG-13. <laughs> and the archangel didn't say, how dare you ask a question, you you presumptuous young woman. He answered her question. Do you know sometimes you'll want to ask God questions, and I have not found that he's offended by my questions. In fact, I think he likes them. In fact, I think he likes them, but he seldom answers in a way that I initially find satisfactory. <laughs> Usually the answer at the beginning makes it worse (laughs) until you realize that it makes it better. So Mary says, how's this going to happen? The angel explains it. And now look at Mary's response in verse 38. Think about what has happened here. Mary is unmarried in a culture where adultery and children being born out of wedlock and all of that sort of stuff is really significantly frowned upon. There are consequences for this. And Mary's response is this. Let it be to me according to your word. Sheesh. You know what I would suggest? I would suggest this encounter was a seriously big transition for Mary. It was a seriously consequential moment that shifted her. Her life before this was here And after this, was way over here. It was a seriously big transition. Would you agree? And here we are talking about her over 2,000 years later. All right, here's another one. John, in Revelation chapter 1. Who wrote the book of Revelation? John. John was referred to as the disciple whom written by... John. Okay, that term, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is only in the writings of John. I just think that's awesome. <laughs> yes, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. And God was like, yep, right, I put it in. <laughs> I think that's excellent. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going, I, I am the member of the church that Paul and Jody love? Can you, <laughs> can you imagine that? Okay, The reason John is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved is because he wasn't just one of the 12, he was one of the three, Peter, James, and John, that got to do all the the really cool stuff when the Mount of Transfiguration, the little girl being raised from the dead. And not only was John one of the three, he was also one of the Sons of Thunder, which I really like the sound of. They kind of got that name under dubious circumstances, but that's a pretty good name. I like the Sons of Thunder. Now, John knew Jesus, the suffering Savior, his friend from Galilee. He knew Jesus. He'd seen Him. He'd seen Him healing the sick and raising the dead and casting out demons. He'd he'd reclined at the table and rested his head on Jesus' chest. He knew Jesus. And because he knew Jesus, he couldn't deny Jesus. And because of his tenacious preaching of the gospel... Even when it became politically unpalatable, he kept preaching and he kept preaching to the point where he was, uh, they attempted to martyr him. You know, of the original disciples, John was the only one that lived to old age. Judas, of course, took his own life. Ten lost their lives for the gospel. And only John lived to old age. But he only lived to old age after they tried to boil him in oil and he supernaturally swam around in it like a sparple. He's just like chilling out in there. I don't know. I mean, you know, he's like, got a cold drink. You know, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. But if you think about this from, from, from the religious leaders and the Romans who want to get rid of him, you think about this guy. If you try to boil him in oil and he swims around in it like it's, like it's a hot spring spa, what do you do? So you're like, we've got to get this guy out of the way. So they stuck him on the Isle of Patmos to keep him out of trouble. And it says this in Revelation 1. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Most believers today, not referring to you, obviously, you're here at church on a Sunday night and not impugning the Sunday morning congregation either, <laughs> I'm not doing that. But most believers, if they'd been through what John had been through, they wouldn't be in the spirit on the Lord's day. They'd be, they'd be moaning and grizzling about what a bad job God was doing of blessing them according to his goodness. See, that's how the danger we get into when we start defining the goodness of God. Well, oh, the goodness of God, yes. Mm. Oh, yeah, okay, no, I don't know what to say. (laughs) He was exiled to the island of Patmos, and he says in verse 10 of Revelation 1, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Then this happens. Verse 13. Oh, no, he said, sorry, verse 11, 12. He said, I heard a voice behind me. And I turned around, and this is what he saw. In the midst of seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet. By the way, many of you know Ian McCormick, eh? the jellyfish man, the guy who was uh, killed by a jellyfish a number of years ago and raised to life. He was dead so long that he was about to be autopsied, and then he was raised back to life. Um, He's my friend. We go fishing together. It's always my goal to outfish him, but I feel like he's got an advantage somehow. <laughs> but one time I was sitting with him and I said, I said, Tell me about Jesus. And I was sitting on a high stool in a cafe, and he started explaining this. He says, You know, he's got eyes of fire. And I said, Yeah, I've heard that in the Bible. And I've always suspected they're blue. I didn't even know why. He says they're blue. It's blue fire. And he said, he opens up his robe that goes all the way down to his feet, and on the inside of the robe, it's like there are moving galaxies. <laughs> I'm trying to sit on a high chair in a cafe and drink a latte (laughs) and he's talking about that. One like the son of man clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool as white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace and his voice... As the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its brilliance. This was Jesus, but not as John had known him in Galilee. This was Jesus, but not as John had known him when he leaned over and put his head on his chest. And look at John's response when I saw him, I turned and I said, hey, good to see you, bro. How are you? No. A little bit like what I talked about this morning. When I saw him, verse 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. Would you agree that this is another significant moment of transition where John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is moving from knowing Jesus as the suffering Savior and now seeing Him as the ever-living, glorious, soon-coming King with a face seven times brighter than the sun, eyes like blue fire, a sword coming out of His mouth, on His thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. What has that got to do with us? Well, I believe that we are in a significant transition and time of reformation in the church, in the Western world, and it's happening right now. And a great challenge is to know what to keep and what to discard. I believe we're in a time uh, when many of our previous assets are becoming liabilities I believe we are in a time when building around human personalities is coming crashing down and some of you will immediately think of a particular situation right now and I don't want you to immediately go to a place of judgment. That, that, that is an old friend of mine. And I'll tell you what, it is toxic on both sides. It is just as toxic when we have people on these pedestals and we put, we put on them a whole bunch of expectations that they can never manage anyway. Many of the ones that have come crashing down have actually been crushed under the weight of the expectations that we were supposed to be putting on the Lord, but we've put on the shoulders of men and women. Left, right and center right now, pastors are walking away saying, I can't do this anymore. Left, right and center, they are walking away and we've got to change this culture because we've got to start having, we've got to start seeing the King high and lifted up. We're moving away from large crowds that are, primarily fragile faith spectators. And we are moving to the church being an equipping center and a missionary sending center. And we are moving. And if you, if, you, if, you only hear, if you don't hear this right, or help me to say this right, if you don't hear this right, you're going to think that I'm saying something I'm not. But we are moving from our emphasis being on the cross to our emphasis now being on the second coming. We are moving from the suffering Savior being the emphasis to the emphasis now being on the glorious soon coming King. You know, we are a lot closer to the day when the Son of God's feet touched down on the Mount of Olives than we are to the day when His feet went up from the Mount of Olives. We are moving from the shadow of the cross to the shadow of the return of Jesus. Now, some of you immediately, you've got concerns about what I'm saying there. If your concerns cause you to switch off, you will go away thinking I've missed it and what I said was heretical. So hang in there for a minute. We are moving our transition in emphasis from this age to the age to come. From a past faith in a past Jesus to a future faith in the future soon coming King. eternity is bearing down on the planet and we are in a transition. Jesus is coming. Now listen to me. The cross is the foundation of everything we are doing tonight. I'm not minimizing the cross one bit. Without the cross tonight, we would be here. We would sing songs of a heaven we could never go to and we would fear a hell we could never avoid. When I was a child, before I knew the gospel, I used to have this repetitive dream when I was seven, eight years old of being given this cup to drink that was way too big and I could never drink it, but I had to drink it. The Bible says that Jesus drank the wrath, the cup of the wrath of God that was against humanity. He drank at the cross what we could never drink. He paid what we couldn't pay in a million lifetimes. There is not one part in what I'm saying that I am diminishing or or removing in any way the foundational centrality of the cross. Do you understand? But the death of Jesus was never presented in the Bible by the New Testament writers as being the primary motivator for endurance to the end. They always spoke about looking forward to the day when He would return. See, what hasn't happened yet, the return of Christ, is this motivation for enduring to the end. We defined obedience like this. All right, you've you've come to Jesus. Good. There are things you should do because of what Jesus has done. But that's only a part of the story because endurance has to be built. Motivation through to the end has to be built. On the anticipation and the expectation that you will yet see Him face to face. You know, one day the Bible says He's going to split the sky. What will that even be like? One day you're going to be out there preaching the gospel, doing your stuff, just getting on with everyday revival. Going to be out there preaching the gospel. You're going to have this prayer that we always have. I've got this prayer in my heart all the time. Oh, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. It's going to be a hang of a lot better when you're here. Come, Lord Jesus, and let everything that needs to happen between now and when you come, let it happen as quickly as possible because we want you to come back. I want to see that devil in the chains thrown in a hole for a thousand years, like the book of Revelation says. I want to see every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around the throne. I want to be able to say there's no more death, no more mourning, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, because the old order of things has passed away and He's made everything new. So we've got this, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. And you're out there sharing the gospel, come Lord Jesus. And you're out there serving faithfully, come Lord Jesus. And you're out there dancing wildly and being an influencer in that area of creative arts, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. You're writing crazy, outrageous songs with prophetic declarations, come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus. You're gathering the men, and you're having to use the big auditorium because two jolly many men are coming at 7 o'clock in the morning. And you just come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. And then one day, suddenly, there's going to be another voice saying, yes, come, and it goes dark and a trumpet sounds. And the sky splits open from east to west. And a man appears in the sky on a white horse with the armies of heaven behind him, and no one's going to look up and go, meh. Because he will be 10,000 times more glorious. He will be 10,000 times more worthy. He will be worth every risk you ever took, every dollar you, every Sunday night you went to church instead of watching something dumb on Netflix. So we stand on the foundation of the cross, but we live in anticipation of his return. Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. Teaching us that denying, uh, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope, which is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is endurance and obedience, fueled by the prize. Dalton Thomas puts this this way. Past tense events are weak motivation for present tense obedience. The cross doesn't make sense of the chaotic world that we live in. But when you understand that before Jesus comes, there will be birth pains. There will be be shakings and turbulence on the earth. And you start looking around at the shakings and the turbulence. And it's all saying one thing. "He's He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. See, we have to move now from an emphasis on a past faith to an emphasis on a future faith, that the Son of God will surely come. Peter Robertson puts it this way. He's put it this way for years. He says, one day, two day will be the day. The day of the Lord is a great and terrible day, the Bible says. And he says between now and then, the days are going to become increasingly great and increasingly terrible simultaneously. But if you don't know he's coming, you'll freak out. The Bible says in Matthew 24 verse 12, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold because they don't know what's going on. They're running around with their heads chopped off because they've just been taught a lazy dominionism that the world's going to get better and better and better and better. And then when we've totally fixed it, Jesus comes back. And then when it begins to spiral out of control downwards, they're like, what the heck's happening? That's not what I was taught. But if we know that the greatest is going to be happening against this backdrop, there's going to be this contrast of an immense revival that spreads all around the earth, but it's going to come against a backdrop of turbulence and shaking. So I want to encourage you, transition in your heart from coming to church to just listen to a good message. Well, I hope you've got a good message today. Because <laughs> you know, I haven't read my Bible all week, so what do you got? <laughs> We've got to transition away from coming as consumers and start coming and saying, I need to be equipped because I want to be on assignment. I want to do the good works that I've been made to do. I want to, I want, I'm saying, here am I, send me. So I'm also saying, Holy Spirit, equip me. So when, I send, when I'm sent, I've got the anointing to go. We're moving from being passive into being active. And we're coming into a new phase and expression of what it means to be the army of God on the earth engaged in spiritual warfare. And we're moving from preaching the broad pathway. Come to Jesus. It's all going to be easy. How's that working for you, by the way? (laughs) To walking the narrow pathway, which is expressed by Matthew 24, 13. The one who endures to the end shall be saved. This is kind of the last thing I want to share with you. I was praying for some friends in Oregon. I got some friends in Oregon. They they, uh, lead a church over there called the Father's House, and it's, One of the most courageous churches I've ever been to. Just courageous, awesome people. They've been blazing a trail right in downtown Portland. And if you've been following anything in America, you know that downtown Portland, I mean, some of these guys, they've been out doing evangelism in the middle of riots. Some of them have been hurt. These are courageous people. Anyway, I was praying for them. And they just recently got a new uh, building, but it's a really old building. It's a, I think it's an old like Episcopalian or Presbyterian church with a big high uh, ceiling at the front, underneath a big old steeple. And they've moved into it. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Martin Spreer and his church—they've moved into something that looks a bit similar. You know, a big old style. I think it was a Catholic church. And I was praying for them, and I've never been in this building because when I went there, they were meeting at Portland State University, but. I saw this picture of their building and right above the stage I saw this huge bristling fireball and I kept looking at it I was like that's interesting there's a fireball hanging over the stage in their church and as I kept looking this fireball was bristling and there were there were tongues of fire coming out of it and everywhere a tongue of fire landed there was baptism in the Holy Spirit, or there was deliverance, or there was salvation, or there was healing. And this fireball was there when the people were there, and not all of the tongues of fire were landing inside the building. A whole bunch of them were going outside the building. They were landing outside the building, and things were happening outside the building. And I kept looking at it, and then I realized that this fireball was there when the church was gathered in the room. But the fireball was also there when no one was there. I saw the room completely empty and silent, but the fireball was still there. It reminded me of a scripture that I meditated on for about three months back in 2009. Have you ever had a Bible verse? You know, you're reading your Bible, just going along, reading your Bible, you know. And, and this, is, this is kind of like your interest or impact level, you know, you're going, oh, do and then suddenly it goes like that. And you're like, what was that? And we often make the mistake because we're reading our three chapters a day and we go, and we go oh, that was interesting. And we keep going. So I was reading Isaiah 33 and I came to verse 14 and I had one of those spikes. And so I stopped and I camped there. No joke. I camped there for about three months. It was the only Bible verse I read recreationally for three months. I was still reading other Bible verses because I had my interns to teach, but here is that Bible verse, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire, who among us can dwell with the everlasting burning, and it just went poof like that, and so every day for three months, I read that, and I meditated on that, and I prayed about that verse, Until I worked out that that verse is not a question, it's an invitation. Deuteronomy, I think it's 4.24, says our God is a consuming fire. This verse says, it's God speaking through the prophet. He says, who among us can dwell with what? The consuming fire. It's the God who is a consuming fire saying, I am who I am. I am a consuming fire who can dwell with me. As I meditated on that I thought shivers that is a dangerous sounding thing to do. I find living with my wife scary enough sometimes. And I mean that because she's so she's so fiery and so prophetic and so you know so So good at keeping her mouth shut when I... I, ah. (laughs) Who can dwell with a consuming fire? Who can dwell with everlasting burning? It's a totally different concept, but in the Proverbs, it's a negative concept, but it says, a man cannot scoop fire into his lap without being burned. That would be true. And it occurred to me that you can't dwell with the consuming fire without getting burnt. And you know what I started doing? There alone, with God, no one else looking, I started saying, I want to. That sounds incredibly dangerous. It sounds like it might kill me, but I want to. It's a little bit like I want to see the face of God. Well, you know, no one can see the face of God and live. Kill me. My wife comes into the garage and there's just a little pile of ash and she'll know that I died happy. Can't you see the can't you see the you know the the epitaph? Saw the face of God. I'm joking, but I, I this fireball, this God who is a consuming fire, he doesn't want to visit. He doesn't want to come to church on Sunday. Who will dwell with me? Remind You know, we've got that Kiwi saying. I don't know if you're all familiar with it, but you know the old, who can handle the jandal? Which is like, who can deal with this reality? And it's God who is a consuming fire saying, I am a consuming fire. Who can handle the jandal and dwell with me regardless of what it, how it marks you or what it might cost you? And I just found this thing rising up in me and I know it's in a bunch of you too, where you're just like, Yes. (laughs) So I was thinking about my friends in Oregon, and as I I, so I typed it, I wrote it down and sent it off to them. And as soon as I hit send, I felt like the Lord said, Do you want it too? And so I realised this wasn't just for my Oregon friends, but it actually started to make me realise this is a picture of how God sees his church. Back in the day in those red line conferences, I can remember one of those where I just heard the Lord whisper to me. This is back in the 1990s. I heard the Lord whisper to me, I will again show myself in this generation to be the God who answers by fire. 1 Kings 18.24, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, You call on your God, I'll call on my God, the God who answers by fire. He is the Lord. Notice Elijah didn't say, I'll beat you up. He says, you call on your daddy, and I'll call on my daddy. You call on your daddy, small d, and I'll call on my daddy, big capital D. And the God who answers by fire, he is the Lord. And I believe this is the transition. We're moving away from We'll show you that our God is completely compatible with all that is beginning to get twisted in society. To actually, our God is a consuming fire. He is who He is. And His way is just simply better. What does it mean when He says... I will again show myself to be the God who answers by fire. It's the fire of His love. It's the fire of His presence. It's His, you know, His mark of ownership on a human being is fire. Have you noticed in the Bible, everything that Jesus touches catches fire? His throne is on fire. The river coming out from it is on fire. He talks to the disciples on the road. Their hearts are on fire. He's in the burning bush. The bush is on fire. Everything's burning. The mark of God on the human heart, on the human life is fire. That's why we need to say, God, you are a consuming fire. I will dwell with you. I've said, oh, I'm going to bring this in for a landing. Praise God. Help me, Jesus. I've said this to you before. God's not, he's looking for a bride, not a date. Religion has us dating God. I'm off to have a date with God. He doesn't want to date you. He wants to marry you. He doesn't want you to visit fire. He wants those that will say, I just want want to dwell with consuming fire. And that's the message of this church. The message of this church, for as long as I can remember, is the message of fire. The fire of his love, the fire of his presence, the fire of revival. Even back to Wai'iti Crescent, when there were these funny little lamps with these little false flames that used to flicker, there was one on each side. And you'd come in for Sunday night, and we'd turn on the little flames, and they'd, they'd sit there doing this all through the worship. And then for, for, for ages, one of them had burnt out, so there was only one on one side. So you didn't want to be on that side. There was no fire. He had to come on this side because here was where the fire was. All right, here's, here's the last thing. Actually, um, who, do I, who do I call for the worship? Who do I call for the worship? Yeah, come on. Yeah, 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 come on. Daniel, come on. Yeah, come on. Let's, let's, just, let's just have you all. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I was his youth pastor, so just do as you're told. <laughs> Here's the last thing I want to share with you. You doing okay so far? How are we doing, we are right. The cloud is moving, we're in a time of transition. Remember in, in uh, the Exodus when Israel were transitioning through the desert from bondage into the promised land? It says this, it says, When the cloud would descend and sit over the tent of meeting, Israel would camp. But as soon as the cloud lifted, they were like, Right, it's time to pack up. Sometimes the cloud would stay there for just a day And then begin to move. Other times it would say stay there for several weeks. But whenever the cloud lifted, Israel's instructions were, pull up your tent pegs, pack up your stuff, we're on the move. This is totally subjective, but I was just minding my own business in my prayer time the other day, and I prayed what you and I have probably prayed 10,000 times. I said, Holy Spirit, come. And I felt like he said, No. What do you mean, no? And I just felt like he said to me, you come. I'm moving. The cloud is moving. You come. I'm not saying if you come to church next week and Jody stands up and says, Holy Spirit, come, don't put your hand up and say, no, 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 (laughs) no. But I am saying this. I'm of the opinion now that God is moving, that He's now going somewhere, regardless. You know, in Ezekiel, it says the river flows out of the temple, and it gets deeper the further away it goes. That's why the here and my, send me thing is so important, because we're going to find that the river is flowing a lot deeper out there, even than it does in here. And when we come in here, gatherings like this are just going to get, start getting swamped and dominated by people with testimonies to share. I was down at Queensgate and I saw this lady and I prayed for her and she got healed. Can I tell the church? And Paul and Jody are going to be like, they're taking notes. This one, this one, this one. And you're going to get to the point where it's like, sorry, open mic day. Open mic. Open mic. Who's got a testimony? And it's not going to be who's got a testimony and a tumbleweed blows by. It's going to be who's got a test. And all the hands will go up. Because we're no longer feeble faith spectators, but we're burning hearted, dwelling with the consuming fire. We're living in the shadow of the return of Jesus, not just looking back, thinking about the cross, but looking ahead and going, he's coming and he's glorious. And when I stand before him, he's not going to look like the white guy that I showed you before. He's going to have these eyes of blue fire. And between now and then, if that's not something worth getting out of bed for, I don't know how to help you. (sighs) <sighs> Would you stand up please? <coughs> do you guys do you have anything to add? do? You have anything to add? You sure? No, cuz read. You. Let's just do this. Empowering grace is going to be found when we are in step with the Holy Spirit and on assignment. Those on assignment are not just those who work in a church. Those on assignment are every believer who with all their heart says, here am I, send me. Every believer in this room who when we conclude this gathering and walk out these doors goes out of here As a missionary on assignment into a confused, fearful, fractured, and hurting world, knowing that they have been sent by God with the ministry of reconciliation. We urge all people everywhere be reconciled to God. Holy Spirit, we say, where you're going, we're coming. Where you're going, we're coming. We recognize we are living in days where the cloud is lifting. And so right now, right now in Jesus' name, I'm beginning to pull up my tent pegs and I'm packing up my duffel bag. Because God, I want to go where you're going. I want to go where you're going. I want to be doing what You're doing. I want to be in step with You, Holy Spirit, and therefore on my assignment. I want to do the good works that You ordained in advance for me to do. I want to be where You've called me to be. I want to say what You've called me to say. I want to pray for who You've called me to pray for. I want to be one that You send. And Lord, we're here tonight and we're saying, When you ask, who can dwell with the consuming fire? Friend, I can't answer for you. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with the everlasting burning? God, I'm asking, come set every willing heart on fire. Come set every willing heart on fire. Come set every willing heart on fire with the revelation that You, great and glorious, everlasting Lamb of God, that You will return to the earth. That Your feet will touch down on the Mount of Olives. It'll split in two, east to west. Creating a valley that runs north to south. And You will go into Jerusalem and You will sit on Your throne and the devil will be thrown in a hole for a thousand years. Father, I thank you. Let your fiery anointing come on every heart in Jesus' name.